Well, let me dismiss our children to Children's Church, those of you who are going. And while our kids are quietly moving out, I do have a couple of announcements. First of all, today, immediately following the service, there's a pastor's meet, greet, and eat. There is a free lunch for those of you who are into such things. And um, it's an opportunity to meet the pastoral staff here, just kind of an informal gathering. We get to know you and you us. And if you're new and visiting with us, we would love to have you. Uh, Secondly, there will be an informational meeting about serving in Cochrane Hills Bible Camp in Alaska. That is next Sunday, immediately following the service in room four. You're going to get your meal and then move to room four after our fellowship or before or during our fellowship meal. Well, I want to thank Charles this morning for praying. I dropped that on him. Uh, Hearing God's people, Christ's people. Singing Christ's praises, of which he is so worthy. Uh, I thought I'd explode. And given that I had to preach, that would be messy. So I left it to Charles, and I'm, I'm grateful for his kindness in that. It's been rightly said that how a Christian handles trouble is the clearest measure, perhaps, of their spiritual maturity and sanctification. The Puritan John Bunyan, who was born in 1628, not to be confused with Paul Bunyan. John was a tinker, Paul was a lumberjack, you remember that, and John couldn't afford an ox, let alone a blue one. Bunyan was by every account a faithful man, a strong man, a sacrificial man, and he was undeterred in gospel ministry despite the suffering that he went through, and it was intense. And we should expect, shouldn't we, as we're faithful in the Christian life, there will be persecution for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. That, that is just reality, and Bunyan endured joyfully great adversity, and he serves really as a role model to us. He was a tinker, a man who worked in metal. He, he, he repaired uh, silverware and, and pots and pans in his day, a, a, a trade he learned from his father. By his very own admission, he was a very vile individual in his teen years. Uh, he was one who was very, very profane. He tells a story of one of the women of the city who, whom he despised because of her profanity, and he said that that woman was shocked at the things that were coming out of his mouth. Bunyan was married around the age of 20, and his wife and her father were very instrumental in his salvation. He ended up having with her four children, the oldest of which was blind. And it wasn't long after his conversion that the tinker became a preacher. Not only a preacher, but a very good preacher. He was broadly popular. It's said that he could 
stir up a crowd of 1,200 at 7 o'clock in the morning in midwinter on a weekday. After his release from prison, I know I'm leaping ahead here, but it's said of him that, that no church in London could hold half of the people who showed up to hear him preach. John Owen was asked by King Charles why he, a great scholar, went to hear an uneducated tinker preach. Owen replied, I would gladly exchange my learning for the tinker's power of touching hearts. God providentially called him to preach Bunyan in in Bedford, England, about 50 miles north of London, and it was about the time that he began preaching, within five years of his beginning, around the time of 1858 through 1862, that a series of laws were passed. They were called the Acts of Uniformity. They required that any and all pastors be licensed by the state and by the state church, the Anglican church, and that those pastors would have to conduct their services and all of the the ongoings of the church according to the book of common prayer. They were told how they must practice their faith and what they must preach. Did not allow a gathering outside of the Anglican church at all. And it was at this point that 2,000 pastors known as nonconformists, the act of uniformity, the nonconformists were put out of their pulpits and forbidden to preach Christ. They, were, they, were, they, were, they had their livelihoods taken away. Spiritual giants like John Owen and Thomas Manton, Richard Baxter, John Bunyan himself, were put out of their pulpits along with thousands of others. Bunyan's biographer writes this, quote, these men would not submit to the decrees of an ecclesiastical despotism, nor in the sacred matter of divine prayer and supreme obedience to Christ, would they be subject to the ordinances after the commandments and the doctrines of men. And it's at age 32 that Bunyan himself was thrown into prison at the height of his strength for what would prove to be 12 years. And he was put there for preaching the gospel to the poor. He was put there because they met outside of an Anglican church. He was put there because he would read and the people would hear and he would preach the word of God and he did not have the ecclesiastical stamp of approval from the Anglican church to do that. The charges, his biographer says, that these congregants were found, quote, with their Bibles in their hands, having just engaged in prayer for the divine blessing. And Bunyan had the audacity to get up to preach. Bunyan, having spent some days in prison, said this, quote, I beg God, that if I might do more good by being at liberty than being in prison, 
that then I might be set at liberty. But if not, his will be done. And verily at my return, I did meet my God sweetly in the prison, comforting of me and satisfying me that it was his will and his mind that I should be there. Where I lie, waiting the good will of God, to do with me as he pleaseth, knowing that not one hair of my head can fall to the ground without the will of my Father which is in heaven. Let the rage and malice of men be never so great that they can do more, nor go further than God permits them. But when they have done their worst, we know that all things shall work together for good to them that love God, end quote. Men like this move me. It's on the shoulders of men like this that we stand. Bunyan was cast into the Bedford jail for 12 long years. He supported his family by making shoelaces. And yet while he was in that jail, despite its difficulties, God gave him endless hours for the study of the word. It's interesting, he had a copy of his Bible and he had a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And for 12 years, that's what he read. Bunyan was so well acquainted with his Bible <coughs> that none less than Charles Spurgeon said, you prick him anywhere and he'll bleed Biblane. Bunyan preached the gospel to those in jail. Bunyan's sermons could be heard outside the Bedford jail walls and it wasn't long until hundreds gathered there outside of the jail to hear him preach. In an attempt to silence Bunyan, they incarcerated him and moved him down into the basement cells where his voice could no longer be heard. in order to stifle his preaching. And it was there that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, he wrote 58 volumes, others of renown as well, but none more so than Pilgrim's Progress, which has been translated into 200 languages and is the second best-selling book ever next to the Bible. Beloved, here's the point. John Bunyan was a poor tinker. And he was called of Christ to preach in a small English village who endured severe limitations at great cost to himself under lock and key 
And yet he preached beyond the walls of his confinement. In fact, he preaches beyond the grave. And they imprisoned this faithful man and his ministry only multiplied along with the gospel that he preached. And the point really is this, this morning, there are some things, beloved, that simply cannot be shackled. Bunyan's bonds did not stop gospel progress. His imprisonment could not silence his preaching and his chains could not restrain his joy. And like John Bunyan and others before him, the Apostle Paul was in prison for his preaching as well. And like Bunyan, Paul's joy is overflowing, though he is shackled to Roman soldiers. And why does he rejoice? Well, even though he is restrained, still Paul sees that the gospel runs free and that the church is emboldened to declare the word of God without fear. It is in jail that we come to the Apostle Paul again this morning in Philippians 1, and we will pick up in verse 12 here in just a moment. But I wanted to give you some of the background again behind Paul's imprisonment. You'll remember he founded the church of, at Philippi, and he had seen the good work that, that God had begun in them and was convinced that he would complete that work. But by the time that Paul writes the Philippian church, he's been in chains and under guard for over four years. Again, don't let that just roll past you. Four years is a long time. You think about the questions that might come to your mind over the course of four years in prison, knowing that you are the, the apostle to the Gentiles. The Jewish leadership had arrested Paul and contrived a plot to kill him, and that became known to, to Paul's nephew, and Paul's nephew found the guards and informed them about this, and so a band of Roman centurions rescued Paul and hurried him out of Jerusalem and took him to Caesarea. And there he appeared before Felix. All of this is in the last part of the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 24. You could go home and read it. Felix left Paul to rot in jail for two years, not knowing what to do with him. Acts 25, we see that the Jews were still pursuing Paul, and they wanted to have him return to Jerusalem again. And it was then that Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship, and then it was Festus and Agrippa who determined to send him to Rome. And on that trip, if you remember, the ship ran aground and was, was broken to pieces, and he spent a few months in Malta, and then he was imprisoned again once he arrived in Rome. And he was imprisoned there for two full years. And while he was there, Acts 28.30 tells us, listen carefully, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. Paul was given some leeway. He wasn't held down in the bellows of a cellar any longer. He was, he was brought up and, and allowed to rent his own quarters. And they would chain a Roman centurion to him there. So he stayed a full two years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. So Paul was enabled to receive now visitors to himself. There was greater freedom in this imprisonment, and he could preach to them. The text tells us that he welcomed all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. 
But don't get the wrong idea. Paul was still not free. It was less restrictive. But he was still shackled to soldiers and the charges that might sever his head from his shoulders still hung over him. And it's here in this jail that he wrote the book of Philippians along with the other prison epistles. And you'll remember that the Philippians loved Paul. They had a special uh, longing for him and a deep concern for him. And so they sent a representative, Epaphroditus, to him with a gift to encourage Paul. And they, they wanted an update. They were concerned for his health, to be sure, but they were also concerned as to what's going on with the progress of the ministry. This man who had been used so instrumentally in their own conversion, now they are concerned for him and his condition. And so Epaphroditus is sent back by Paul with this letter explaining things. And he thanks them for the gift that, that they sent to him. And he tells them of his condition. And he gives them this ministry update. And he tells them ultimately that all things are well with his soul. But I believe he wants them to understand something more. He wants them to learn something from his experience. He wanted them to know that God's purposes are never disrailed, ever. That there are some things that cannot be bound and restrained by chains. Let's pick up together in verse 12. Philippians 1.12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. That's all the further we are going to go today. Can you hear the upbeat demeanor of Paul as he writes these words, that he is in fact optimistic, not pessimistic? After all of these years, he's still in chains. His life is still hanging in the balance. There's a lot of fog, a lot of things that are still unclear. But Paul's spirit is irrepressible, and he is buoyant. In fact, in verse 18, it says, What then? Only then in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is rejoicing and determined to rejoice. And we learn from this, don't we, that, that adversity, even extended imprisonment, even the sense that maybe you had a purpose for your life, but God seems to have sidelined you. Paul wants us to understand that difficulty does not have to be cause for despair and discouragement in the Christian life. I read these words and I imagined myself there in chains and I thought about verse 12 where Paul says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances. I'd have taken the word that out. I would have said, frankly, if, if I were Paul, I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances. You see, Paul was focusing on the result of his imprisonment I would have focused on my suffering. Here I sit, 
brethren, still chained day after day, unable to move freely. The food is less than palatable. My privacy is non-existent. Though things are less restrictive, I still have to, I have to rent these quarters. And how am I supposed to rent them? I, I don't even have a job. I would have told you that Felix left me locked up and counted me for dead for two years. I would have told you how hard it is to live under the pressure of knowing that my life could be taken tomorrow. And it's hard to sleep nights not knowing whether you're going to live or die. Honestly, I probably would have told you I was a little disillusioned with God. I mean, where is he in the midst of this? He's called me to something and yet set me aside. There was another man, by the way, who wrestled with that. His name was John the Baptist, do you remember? It is amazing to me that Paul doesn't whine. I used to have a large sticker that I put up when I used to be a teacher right behind my desk so that every student who looked at me had that sticker in the background and it had whining with that red X right through the middle of it, no whining. Paul is not a whiny Christian. Paul makes zero attempt here, zero, to elicit any sympathy. He doesn't even really want to discuss his circumstances, as dire as they are. He barely makes reference to them. In the Greek, it's nothing more than the things concerning me. Gee, thanks, Paul. Uh, maybe even more literally, the things coming down on me, the stuff that's, you know, weighing down on me. Beloved, listen, we are not at the mercy of our circumstances. We are in the merciful hands of a sovereign God who is in and over every circumstance. And it is vital that we come to grips with that. Or we will be paralyzed throughout our lives, moping around. Nothing, nothing just happens to the Christian. You and I need to remember this principle as we move through life together that everything that comes our ways has the fingerprints of God upon it, whether it is good or hard. I didn't say good or bad because God's working all things together, what? For good purposes, but that doesn't mean that they aren't hard. Every last circumstance, biggest to smallest, hardest to best, must be greeted with the eyes of faith, knowing that God is involved in our trouble. Always, always, always he is involved in our trouble. Even when the wickedest of people have the wickedest designs, they are not ultimately in control. Whether it is health problems, financial issues, relational challenges, difficult kids, a flat tire, it doesn't matter. God is, is in it in some way, shape, or form for you and for good and for his purposes. And that should strengthen you. You see, Paul has this certain perspective on life, this, this priority. He understood these things and it helped him through all of his suffering. I'm just going to remind you of the passage for time's sake this morning. But you remember in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul, Paul says, you know, we're afflicted in every way. Was Paul afflicted? He was absolutely afflicted in ways. But he says, we were never crushed. I don't often think of Paul as being somebody who was perplexed. 
But Paul confesses there are times when I'm perplexed. But he says he was never despairing. Was Paul persecuted? Yes, severely. And yet, he says, I'm I'm not forsaken. And I was struck down, but I'm never destroyed. Why? What is it about his perspective that enabled him to always couple the difficulty with the reality that he was an overwhelming conqueror and a victor in the end? Well, it was in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18 that we read these words, we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are unseen. In other words, we live by faith in the things that God has told us in his word. We take God at his word. We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, they're earthly, that you're only thinking on a horizontal plane. You must learn to look vertically and see the things that are eternal. You see, Paul understood that life is about God's purposes, not his own. Life is about God's will and not necessarily the pursuit of pleasure. He knows that God is in and over every detail of life. Do you think the Apostle Paul was well aware of Joseph's life? Do you remember those words in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20? As for you, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You see, God had purposes in Joseph being sold off into slavery and left for dead by his brothers. Paul could persevere with courage and with joy because he was confident in the providential control and the sovereign power of a good God. He was confident. He trusted God. And here's Paul, a missionary at heart. He's traveled freely throughout the known world. He's preached to massive crowds of people. He's caused quite a stir. And now he is in chains with a rather mundane life in the same place with soldiers as his constant companions, and where he might have moped about feeling set aside, I want you to see that Paul did not sulk in his shackles. Instead, he rejoiced. Why? Well, that brings us to our first point. The gospel of Christ cannot be shackled. The gospel of Christ cannot be shackled. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, note this, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. (laughs) What does Paul want the Philippians to know? His brothers in Christ, this is the first time he uses this. It's a wonderful word. And and he draws his, his brethren in near, his family, his spiritual family. He calls them in. He says, I want you to know something, that even though I'm in chains Don't be confused. The gospel is not. I'm not free, but the gospel cannot be chained. In fact, he wrote those express words in 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David, according to my gospel, listen carefully, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. 
Brothers, I want you to know that while I'm suffering hardship, and don't discount the hardship, I'm treated like I'm a common criminal. I'm, I'm stuck here in prison. That's reality with a small r. That is the world in which I'm living. These chains are real. My suffering is real. But understand this, above and beyond all of that, the word of God cannot be chained. God's plans are never derailed. And though my design for my life apparently is not God's design for my life at this point, God's plans are better. And they've proven that because the gospel runs. In fact, the words that he speaks there, he says, note that it, it's the greater progress of the gospel. There'd be progress of the gospel if I were free, but now that I'm in chains, now that I'm bound, it goes faster and further. This word progress is a, is a, is a great word. It literally means to cut before. It's used for clearing brush or blazing a trail. It's used in ancient Greek of a battalion cutting a road through thick forest of trees so that the rest of the army might follow. It made me think of the Army Corps of Engineers. I looked them up, and, and in their job description, here it is, the Army Corps of Engineers, their duties are to breach obstacles, to construct fighting positions, to fix floating bridges and obstacles and defensive positions to place and to detonate explosives, to conduct route clearance op operations to, to emplace and detect landmines and to fight as provisional infantry when required. That's what the gospel's doing. The gospel's blowing up. The gospel's clearing a path. It's, it's, the gospel is a machete cutting through bamboo. The gospel is a freight train that, that is moving with a full head of steam. The, the Jews couldn't stop it. Felix and Festus couldn't stop it. The Romans couldn't stop it. Paul's chains and bonds were impotent to slow the gospel. In fact, he says it advanced it. And that's counterintuitive. That you would sideline one of the greatest evangelists of all time, and yet the gospel still speeds on. Paul says, that's got to be perplexing for you, Philippians, so let me explain further. He says in verse 13, look at it, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. He's starting to explain what he means by this gospel-making progress. And he refers to his situation as imprisonment in the cause of Christ, literally my imprisonment in Christ. Paul saw himself as the Lord's prisoner, didn't he? You remember Ephesians 3.1, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Gee, Paul, I, I thought you were under Roman bondage. No, I'm a, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Again, brothers and sisters, don't let those words just blow by you. Imagine yourself in a jail cell for years. And the thinking, how anchored this is in Paul's thinking, how often he meditated on it, because certainly he 
he dealt with the difficulty of being bound, and yet his answer was, no, I'm in here by the will of a sovereign God. This is good, and this is right. Ephesians 4.1, therefore I, the prisoner, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. 2 Timothy 1.8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Philemon 1 and verse 9, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Philemon verse 13, I'm in imprisonment for the gospel. You see, Paul knew why he was in prison. And it wasn't ultimately because of the Jews and it wasn't because of the Romans. He was in bondage because of Christ. He was in bondage because of Christ. Because of Christ. You understand what I'm saying? He was in bondage because of Christ, because of Christ. It was Christ's servant. It was Christ's prisoner. It's Christ's soldier. For Paul to live is Christ. It is no accident that he's in jail. And so when Paul goes into jail, he, by the will of God, takes the gospel with him. And rather than sending Paul out to the world, God is going to bring the world to the Apostle Paul in jail. It's amazing. My imprisonment in Christ has become, note this, well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. There's a lot in that statement. The reason for Paul's imprisonment became well known. And and I think what he means by that is people are very well aware that I am not in jail because I am a criminal. I'm not in jail because I've done anything wrong. I'm in jail because I live for Christ, I preach Christ, and I'm unwilling to stop those things. And if anyone understood that clearly, it would have been the soldiers to whom Paul was chained. They're described here as the whole Praetorian Guard. They're this very elite imperial regiment that served to protect Caesar and his residents. For, for you and for me, this, this would be the secret service. Paul says, the whole secret service knows about my imprisonment. And they know why I'm imprisoned. These were the emperor's personal bodyguards. Think of it for a minute. Paul lives two full years in Rome with at least one guard chained to him. Paul's in a small set of chains that bound his wrists, and then that chain was connected to a guard at all times. And these men, these very elite forces, one by one in six-hour shifts, came in and unlocked one another's chains and hooked themselves up and they kept trading it out. I mean, you want to think about a captive audience for the gospel. Think about who these guards had sat next to in their life. Think of the vileness of the people that they had imprisoned in the past. Here they are chained to one of the greatest evangelists of all times. These guys had spent long days and night with the worst of people and now they are locked to a gospel preacher and preach he did. He preached to individuals. He preached to large groups. Acts 28, 23 again, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. There there were crowds that would come to Paul in his imprisonment in these rented quarters. These guards overheard conversations between those who came to visit Paul. Men like 
Timothy, men like Artemis, men like Tychicus. Can you imagine? But, but beyond that, these men, chained to Paul, heard him pray at all times. These men not only heard Paul pray and heard those conversations, strategic as they were with Timothy and etc., not only did he, he, they hear him expound the word of God to large groups of people, but they got to listen to him dictate the prison epistles to his amanuensis. With every shift change, from one guard to the next, Paul undoubtedly proclaimed the gospel to them directly. I can hear them. You're not like the others. Why are you here? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about Jesus the Nazarene about Jesus Christ, about the King of kings and Lord of lords. Caesar's nothing compared to him. This Jesus is God who came in human flesh as an expression of the very love of God for mankind. And he came and he, he took on human flesh and he lived 33 years in that flesh he lived perfectly and he lived righteously. And you know, he was put to death bearing the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. In fact, some of your own were there. There were soldiers who, who nailed him to the cross. You talk to your men back at the barracks because some of them will remember this Jesus. You need to know that he offered his life a sacrifice for, for sinners to, to save us from the wrath of God. And your men were not only assigned to the cross, but there were some assigned to the tomb where his body was placed to guard the place. And Christ rose victorious from that grave three days later. And he has ascended back into heaven and he is alive and he is returning again to judge the living and the dead. And he promised to forgive the sins of all who would repent, even you, Roman soldier. Needless to say, those were not the kinds of conversations that these soldiers were used to having with their prisoners. Can you imagine the sincerity of Paul? This man filled with the Holy Spirit, manifesting the, the fruit of the Spirit in abundance, demonstrating not a complaining spirit, not a victimized mentality about his imprisonment, but rather graciously accepting his circumstances in front of these men who were so used to people who would lie to them and seek to deceive them, men who cursed their imprisonment, men who resented the chains in which they found, who were fearful of death. And yet here's Paul, the apostle Paul, taking a concern, unjustly jailed and unfairly treated as he was, filled with the fruit of the Spirit, taking a soul concern for these soldiers. He became a military chaplain before there was such a thing. 
A.T. Robertson wrote this, quote, preaching to soldiers has always appealed to strong preachers. The shadow of death in the battle of tomorrow brings the message close to home to strong men's hearts. One is able to preach as a dying man to dying men. Wasn't that the Apostle Paul? The sentence of death upon him, speaking to men who might die tomorrow, fighting in a war, resisting a rebellion, whatever it might be. We read our Bibles too fast, don't we? Amazing when you really think about how this is all transpiring and all of it by the will of God. I mean, you can see how how this man Paul and his gospel just spread through the barracks like wildfire. The gospel stuck to these soldiers like stickers in your socks. And they, they took it with them everywhere they went. Some of them would finish and go back up to the Praetoria. They would go back up and be with Caesar's family. They would protect Caesar himself. Others would be dispersed out into other areas as they went out to fight battles. And they just took the gospel with them. Don't miss that word whole. The whole Praetorian Guard. Can you imagine it? And then the text tells us, end to everyone else which is Paul's way of summing it up concisely. But the gospel spread far and wide, and it was a unique opportunity that he had to preach the gospel to some of the most powerful people on the planet that never would have happened apart from his imprisonment in Rome. He was able to preach through these soldiers to the upper crust of society. In fact, if you've I I hate doing this because it's like giving you the punchline, but if you skip over to chapter 4 and verse 22, Paul is closing up his greetings. Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. Look at this. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Beloved, when's the last time you spoke the gospel? When's the last time you you testified to this Christ? And preached this indomitable message of a saving Christ upon a cross, risen and returning to somebody else. Do you understand the power that is in that message? It is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, that we might be like the Apostle Paul. Caesar's household. Caesar who demanded to be worshipped as God. Has people in it who worship the true God? Yeah. Beloved, God's plans are never thwarted. They are never thwarted. Go to the right a couple of pages. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3. We 
we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, note this, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. This gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. It is unstoppable. And though Paul is confined and though Paul is limited, the gospel spread and it pollinated the entire world. You would easier restrain the wind than stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it had a profound impact upon the lost in Rome, and it had a profound impact on the church in Rome. Not only can the gospel not be shackled, but neither can the preaching of the church, which is our, our second point this morning. The preaching of the church cannot be shackled. Look at the impact that the difficulty of Paul's life and circumstances had on his fellow believers. Verse 14, most of the brethren... Trusting in the Lord, not all of the brethren, but most of them, the lion's share of them, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. I in my chains spoke the gospel to the praetorian guard. They took it places. And in my absence, since I was sidelined, others have stepped up in the church at Rome. And when they came to understand my circumstances and they saw my example, they grew in their confidence and their commitment to step out themselves in their daily life and preach the gospel with boldness. Not all of them, but most of them. They picked up the slack. These believers saw Paul's heroic example in prison and they saw him preach boldly, though he were in chains. They saw that he suffered joyfully. They saw that he labored diligently and faithfully, despite the hardships. And what did it do? As he stood firm in his faith, confident in his faith, uncompromising in his quest to make the gospel known, to let Christ be known, what? Others saw that. They saw that he would serve no matter the cost, and this emboldened them in their resolve to preach Christ fearlessly in their daily lives. And given that every word of Scripture is inspired, please note that they didn't just have courage, but they had far more courage to speak. Paul's example put a backbone in these believers and they were determined now to stand for the truth in Paul's absence. It's been said many times, maybe what we need in America is a good old-fashioned persecution. To awaken us from our slumber and to energize us. I would give you three things that we ought to gain from this. 
It really could have made it four, but I'm going to give you three. We like things in threes. Number one, note that it was the word of God they spoke. Most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my, imp- my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God. They weren't merely offering their personal testimony, good as that is. They weren't offering up philosophical arguments that would please the people who were listening to them. No, they were given to speak the truth of the word of God And note the second thing, that they did it without fear. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us this, that it's normal and natural to fear the potential circumstances for preaching the word of God. But beloved, that fear in you can be overcome, just as it was in them. Paul wrote to his young charge, Timothy, and he said, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, literally cowardice, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Brothers and sisters, we are in a battle and we need to be bolder. You don't have to cower That fear can be overcome. And the related point to that, of course, that comes out of this is that your life, my bolder brother and sister, can impact those around you, just as Paul's did. Who will step up? Who in here will begin to articulate the truth and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ more boldly in their lives, maybe even reaping a consequence? Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's a good beating. I don't know what it will be. But who will stand up and declare the truth unapologetically so that the rest of us might undertake the task with greater boldness and greater courage because of your example? There's a third thing this teaches us, and that is that the fires of persecution against the gospel only proliferate the preaching of the gospel. Put simply, persecution proliferates preaching. Persecution will proliferate preaching. Some of you know that I used to be an elementary school teacher. I had 7th and 8th graders, and I used to teach up in the Alta area, which, of course, has a lot of trees. It's a beautiful area to be. And every year when I would do a science unit on um, botany, basically, I would have a, a, a local forester come in, and he would always tell the story about the fact that when the first settlers came into Alta and they wanted to plant farms and they wanted more Douglas fir because Douglas fir can be used as, as a, a timber for, for building houses, it's more profitable, they had to get rid of the white pine and Alta was just f- filled with white pine trees. And so what these settlers decided to do was they would just light them on fire. They burnt the forest down. And what they found is that what releases the seed inside the cone of a white pine tree is the heat that comes from fire. And where they burned down a thousand white pines, they ended up with 10,000. This is just the way it is with the gospel. The fires of persecution may come at us, but it will just produce more seed. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
and it's counterintuitive, but the more you persecute the church, the more she grows. The more you seek to douse her, the hotter she burns. And the courage of believers in affliction inspires others to greater courage and greater confidence in the Lord. Whether, it, whether it's, it's Huss humbly kneeling at the stake or it's Luther before the Diet of Worms saying, here I stand, I can do no other. Or it's the determination, as Charles prayed earlier, of our brethren in Canada who've, who've declared to the state that Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is. Or, beloved, because most of us will not necessarily live at, 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 at the prominence and the plane of those men, could I say this? How about, how about the determination of a parent who is, who is bearing up under the sorrow of having lost a child tragically in a car accident? Who, who patiently trusts the Lord in the sovereign, sovereignty of his will and, and publicly, through their tears, testify about the goodness of God. Or, beloved, how about someone in long, drawn-out health problems who are full of weakness and pain and yet persevere with joy, knowing that by this death they will glorify God and therefore, they testify to their doctors and to their nurses and to all who come to visit that God is good. Or how about the young woman wanting to be married, waiting and waiting and waiting, and all the while living productively with gladness and proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ who is better to her than a husband? Brothers and sisters, wherever you are and whatever your circumstances, tired mother, discouraged father, God has you there for the revelation of his glory. God has you there to prove his sufficiency. God has you there that you might declare the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And understand this, that faithfulness begets faithfulness and courage begets courage. And what courage is kindled when the people of God bear up under sorrows while suffering unjustly? That finds favor with God and that puts the glory of God on display. And in the interest of our own courage, I want to go back to Bunyan. The Bedford jail could not silence John Bunyan. Ten years after he was married, his wife passed away, having borne him four children. Remember the first one, blind. Bunyan remarries within a year to a young woman by the name of Elizabeth. who bore him two more children, and for all of Bunyan's 12 years in jail, she raises them as a single mother. After having already made one plea in 1661, <clears throat> she went to London to plead his case before the magistrates, and a second time she met with a very direct question, will he stop preaching. 
My Lord, she replied, he dares not leave off preaching as long as he can speak. She left London a second time, her husband still in jail. Bunyan was told repeatedly that if he would merely stop meeting and stop preaching, he could be released at any time. And this was for Bunyan an agonizing trial and temptation, as you might imagine. He said this, quote, The parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies. You understand what he's saying? Not only because I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies, and by that he meant his family. But also because I have often brought to my mind the many hardships and the miseries and the wants that my poor family was to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer to my... (sighs) who lay nearer to my heart than all that I had. Oh, the thoughts of hardship when I thought that my blind one might go under broke me to pieces. Bunyan was asked by the magistrates, do you not love your wife and children then? Indeed I do. Very dearly. But in comparison with Jesus Christ, I do not love them at all. And back to jail he went. Things did not get much easier after his release. His biographer writes, quote, meetings were broken in upon, worshipers hurried to prison, separatists changed the place of gathering from time to time, they set their sentinels on watch, They left off singing hymns in their services. And for the sake of greater security, they worshiped again and again in the dead of night. Ministers were introduced to their pulpits through trap doors in the floors or ceilings or through doorways extemporized in walls. End quote. Beloved, all of that to say, our day may be coming soon. Are you arming yourself to suffer? We have not known it. By the grace of God, we have not known it. But it is encroaching. And I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I do not know if and when it will come to this country. But I can tell you as a matter of pastoral concern, we want to make sure you're prepared just as we are preparing our own hearts. 
What was the impact of Bunyan's difficult life? The gospel ran unfettered. His preaching spread far and wide. And his joy was never abated. So brother and sister, take courage, be buoyed up by the example of faithful men, acquaint yourself with them, read those old biographies of dead guys and and be strengthened by them. And may our hearts be strengthened with with a resolve that come what may, we are going to offer ourselves to our Savior faithfully to preach that gospel to the end. And may we learn to trust the Lord that no matter our hardships, that he will in fact prosper the gospel and he will build his kingdom and his church cannot be prevailed against. He will build his church. And may our joy, brothers and sisters, be filled up to overflowing as we submit to his perfect and providential rule in our lives. And next week we'll see, next week we will see, Lord willing, from this text, that joy itself cannot be constrained in the people of God because these things, beloved, gospel saving, gospel preaching, and gospel joy, they are the things that are not shackled. Let's pray as our music team comes forward. Our Lord, we thank you for this text. It does strengthen us by your spirit, and we're grateful that you have given it to us. We thank you for men like the Apostle Paul who knew that it was his lot to suffer much on your behalf, and so he blazed a path following on the heels of Christ. Men like John Bunyan and John Owen and countless others, Lord, who have suffered for the sake of the gospel We thank you for the relative peace that we have known. And Lord, we pray that we would never prize our comfort more than the progress of the gospel. That, Lord, our lips would never be silenced by the threat of loss. Lord, we pray that you would make us a beacon for the truth. That we would shine that light brightly from this place out to the uttermost ends of the earth, if you would allow Lord, that we would walk faithfully and that we would greet whatever our circumstances are, even when those providences seem dark, Lord, that we would greet them with joy and with gladness, knowing that you are up to good things in us. And Lord, may our joy be full. We thank you for Christ, who suffered in our place, who left us an example to follow in his footsteps. Lord, may you be pleased in us. May we give our lives just as these men did to see your purposes accomplished. Help us, Lord, in our own exertions to weary ourselves for eternal purposes. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.